the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Fresh from a cruise through Alaska, welcome back. Thank you very much. Graduate of Trinity University, where she majored in French, like everybody should, and then earned a master's in gerontology, and she is a well-known, nationally recognized gerontologist. Carol's also the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and every week on Caregiver SOS On Air, we talk about not only interesting news items, but we have super guests who join us. And today we'll be talking in just a little while with Sheila Warnock, who is the founder and president of Share the Caregiving. It's not a bad thought. And author of Share the Care. We'll talk to her soon. When you were on your trip, and a lot of people have taken that cruise up to Alaska, uh, and, and they've gone on land, many people talk about the whales but you saw a lot of grizzlies. Well, we did see whales. I just want to say yes. There were whales. One was happily splashing around, one flipper in the air paddling about uh, that I remember. But the grizzly bears, we went to up to Denali, which we had never done. And, and for those of you who don't know the mountain, Mount McKinley, now officially again Denali, Mount Denali, uh, which is Indian for the big one which it is the highest mountain in North America. See all the things you can learn on this show? That's um, cool. Actually, most people never see the mountain because it's so high. It's covered in clouds. So they have a 30% club for those who actually see it. We saw the very top of it. In addition wow. to all the grizzly bears running around at the bottom, we saw the very top and nothing in between. But it is a massive mountain and very impressive and i'd like to go back for several days to make sure i see the whole thing and you saw grizzly cubs mom and cubs and when it was reported there was a wolf running down the road with a leg in its mouth but we didn't get there in time with a leg in its with mouth leg in its mouth and not its own now, oh, leg. the bus driver was very excited he goes oh another bus driver said there's a wolf <laughs> on, trotting down the road around the corner with a leg in its mouth but we missed that that's nature at its finest. Well, for those who are involved in <laughs> caregiving, maybe a trip like that is one of the five calming techniques caregivers can employ. Well, I can tell you that if I had been outside of the bus and had seen the grizzly bear instead of inside, I would have needed number one, which is take five steps back, <laughs> but don't run. Um, so this, uh, five calming techniques. I thought, you know, this is really um, easy to remember. Uh, because A, I can count to five, and B, it has to do with five. So number one is, you know, you know that moment when you just can't take it anymore, either with your kid or with the person you're caring for, or maybe the person running the boards at the radio station, you just can't take it anymore. Um, you take five steps back, literally from the situation. Back up, get away from it physically for a while is number one. Number two is just stop and count to five. You do not have to throw a fit back immediately when the person you're caring for is throwing a fit. Count to five and decide, hmm, is that really what I want to do? Is that going to make this a better outcome? Makes it only worse. Yeah. So find five whole minutes for yourself. You know, if you give someone a snack, the likelihood that you might get at least three minutes, maybe even five is higher, TV or, or some other kind of distraction. Um, but try to get five minutes where you can just be by yourself, lock yourself in the bathroom as long as your loved one is safe. Um, or if you can't escape physically, think of five things like grizzly bears frolicking in Alaska that uh, make you feel calm or make you happy. You know, you could be picturing that perfect ice cream sundae on the cruise ship. Like mini mindfulness. Mini, mini mindfulness. Yes, Dr. Jamie would be very happy. You would get <laughs> would points be. with him for that, Ron. <laughs> um, and then the last one is take... Five deep breaths, breathing in for five seconds, 
hold it for five seconds and out for five seconds. And and what we have read over, you know, our research exploration in the past year is that a lot of the mindfulness, a lot of the yoga, a lot of those stress reduction techniques, it's really about the breathing. This is the simplest way you can practice it. Five times, five in, five hold, five out. And my yoga master, Ashley Martinez, taught me that. It works. And the key is breathing. Yes, the key is actually remembering to breathe because we know when we're stressed out. We don't breathe. We don't breathe. That's pretty cool. So five calming techniques. And speaking of calming, we're going to talk in just a few minutes with Sheila Warnock, of CEO of the Share the Caregiving Organization. And she's had a lot of experience in caregiving and developed a, really a plan to help make caregiving a shared responsibility, which makes a whole lot of sense. So five calming techniques. Correct. I like that. So if you, if you want to dig in a little bit deeper, I do have a list of the best caregiving books so far in 2018. Why don't you share that with me? Because I love when you have a list of books. I know. And what we're going to try to do is to get each of the authors of these books um, on the show over the next year. Carol's looking at our producers. Uh, Claire is here. And the newest on board, Hester, Hester Lily, is here. We'd like to, you know, Hester, we'd like to welcome you to Caregiver SOS on air. I hope so, you're not in the Witness Protection Program. We can we, say your name, right? Yes, we just, we just said okay, it. Okay, good. It's fair, right? She didn't tell us not to. Yeah, hey, you shouldn't have correct. taken the job, Hester. <laughs> um, so we've got these books, and we're going to try to get the authors. But we were talking about mindfulness, and, and that's number one is um, the conscious caregiver, a mindful approach to caring for your loved one without losing yourself, which we know is something it's easy to do. You feel like you're disappearing. So the conscious caregiver, um, and all of these, you can look them up on Amazon.com. Um, and that one, I do oh, where did the author of the book go? Um, While you look for that, let I me can- remind folks, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernia, looking for the author of a book. Which is Linda Abbott. So Linda on Abbott on mindfulness. Uh, while they're still here is a memoir. It's a first-person account um, of a caregiver talking about someone who's disappearing um, with Alzheimer's, and that's Patricia Williams. Um, the Actually, the gov- former governor of Wisconsin, Marty Schreiber, wrote a book called My Two Elaines, referring to Elaine, his wife that he knew and loved, and Elaine, the woman who had Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. Who he cared for. Uh, so that sounded interesting. Um, and then Living with Dying, A Complete Guide for Caregivers by Katie Ortlip and Johanna Beecham. You know, it Living with Dying is not something we as Americans are comfortable with. And I've always found these books to be very helpful. Um, and even with dealing, as you know, I've lost some older relatives recently. It's not been a good year. It has not been a good year. And so um, kind of making peace with that process uh, and recognizing you know, letting go and, and, and the people that you are caring for and they're reconciling themselves with their own death, all of that does not come naturally. Uh, and so that would be a book you might be interested in. But there's a whole list. You can go to uh, thenextavenue.org. Just type in Best Books for Caregivers in 2018 at nextavenue.org, and you can find the whole list. And Hester will book each and one of, every one of those and, authors. And tune into Caregiver SOS on air to hear from the cool. author. That should be fun. We will have that coming up on Caregiver SOS on air. Next up, six steps to fight loneliness. Well, and this one was really not about caregivers, but as we've talked, uh, you know, caregivers often become socially isolated. It's just them and their their loved one, and so they do become lonely. And all of that research recently that talks about, I mean, loneliness is the new it's smoking. It's the it's new smoking. Because uh, it increases 45% increase uh, risk of death, 59% greater mental and physical decline, and we're already exhausted if we're caregivers. Um, and then it can lead to increased likelihood of Alzheimer's, other chronic illnesses. It's just not good. So if you are a caregiver and you're feeling cut off from everybody, number one is acknowledging that you're feeling cut off from everybody. You know, if you don't acknowledge the problem, that's, you know, all the the self-help programs and alcohol programs, you have to acknowledge there's a problem. So you have to acknowledge that you're feeling lonely and left out. Stop ignoring it. Stop ignoring it. Um, that's the biggest step. And then make number two is make a plan to tackle that. Decide, I'm going to do something 
about that. And having observed some of my older relatives that have gotten cut off from their friends as they've died and they've gone to nursing homes uh, and thinking about what they were doing to try to remedy that. Uh, and, and it's really brought to light, even in myself, as, as I'm getting older, how do I reconnect with some of my older friends? Well, you're looking at me You have me a long like, way to go until you get older. <laughs> Some days you it's, feel older than others. That's true. all it's, I have to say. It's I all mean, perception. It's all perception. <laughs> so you have to make an intentional plan, which could be, um, you know, trying to going to a support group, um, maybe connecting with another caregiver who could you could share some care with, which I'm sure we'll be talking with our first guest, you know, sharing about that, about that sharing the care. But it's really about focusing on the other person. Because what happens when we're feeling lonely is we're feeling sorry for ourselves. We're thinking about our bad situation. It's all about me. It's a pity party. Um, And kind of breaking that cycle is really being curious about what's going on in other people's lives. I wonder what my sister's doing. I haven't talked to her in forever. It's another role that caregiver teleconnection can play as well. Absolutely. Listening in on the teleconnection, um, caregivertelekinnection.org. A free service. Free service from the WellMed Charitable Foundation, uh, where you can hear from experts and talk to other caregivers. And that's using technology to get connected. You know, we have discovered um, my 97-year-old aunt who recently passed away. We never taught her to do um, any, any technology except FaceTime. You have an iPhone, you push FaceTime, voila, there's a person that you can see on the on the phone. And she would do that. That worked where That's nothing cool. else did. Yeah. yeah. So um, using that technology, um, but it really is about identifying ways to change your situation and connect with other people you don't have access to normally. It's going to take some effort. That's cool. So give it a try. So give it a try. Got about a minute and a half. When parents refuse caregiving help. That would have been my mother. Well, how often do we hear this? You know, uh, when somebody needs help, uh, you arrange all this help for a loved one, and then they're like, no, I don't want to let him in my house. What she did. I don't need the help. She was caring for my dad. He had dementia. Uh, I connected because I was running Jewish Family Service in San Antonio. I called my counterpart in Cleveland. We arranged for a social worker and an aide to go out to the house. They rang the doorbell. My mom answered. They said who they were. She said... Why don't you go help someone who needs it? That's right. Yeah. And And she needed it. And she needed it. Well, and this is written by Jody Gastfriend, um, who wrote the book My Parents Keeper. And she was talking about how her father would say, I have two daughters. I don't need any help. And one of the daughters had given up her job and moved in with him. Wow. And he became an amputee, was refusing a ramp on the house. No, my daughter can help. She you know, just heft me over the, the doorstep. And so basically wow. what she says is sometimes it takes a crisis, like getting an amputation um, or a bad hospital stay. Sometimes it takes uh, the caregiver standing up and saying, I'm sorry, I cannot lift you over the doorstep anymore. We're getting a ramp. Um, but it's usually let them have as much autonomy as possible because no usually means I don't want to give up anything else. And your older loved one is probably afraid of losing autonomy. So letting them make as much many of the decisions as they can. Sheila Warnock joins us in a moment, president and CEO of Share the Caregiving. That's coming your way on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. This is 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, it is always nice when we make a promise and then we deliver. 
We've been telling you that Sheila Warnock would be joining us in a few minutes here on Caregiver SOS on Air, and she will join us shortly. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And one of the challenges, Carol, that we talk about all the time is the loneliness that caregivers feel and how difficult it is for them sometimes to reach out and ask for help. I was so excited when I saw the background information um, about Sheila and Share the Care, and I think the name says it all, Share the Care, because too many of us walk the caregiving journey alone. And Sheila, we're so happy that you have joined us. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm very delighted to be with you today. Thank you. Now, you spent a lot of years in advertising and marketing, uh, and, and you end up, uh, after some 30 years in that business, uh, you suddenly became a sole caregiver for your mother. How did that happen? Well, it just kind of crept up on me. You know, my mother was a widow, and um, my brother was in the State Department. He lived in Japan. So I live in New York City, and my mom was way upstate. And, uh, you know, she was not in the greatest of health, and over the course of three years, um I talked to her about moving from a rural area to a retirement community. And as I was trying to make that happen, she needed more and more help. So it was something that grew gradually. But during the last year, uh, when I did move her to a retirement community, she went uh, downhill very quickly. And I had nurses' aides three days a week, and I was at her place four days a week. I had to quit working. I was a freelancer. I couldn't do that anymore. My friends didn't understand what was going on with me. You know, they didn't understand why my mother needed so much attention because their parents weren't at this stage. And it never occurred to me to ask for help at the time. Uh, and also, there was no help in terms of what is offered today in the world. Uh, there was no caregiving help back in the 80s when all this happened. That's correct. So it was really, I became your classic burned-out, depressed, isolated caregiver. And I was on the verge of really, you know, losing it. And actually it was somebody, an outside voice, one of the aides said to me, you know, your mother can't be alone anymore. And I knew this. I knew this intellectually. But I needed someone outside of me to say it so that it became real. And so I talked to my mom about moving to a nursing home because I had no other options. It was really, really uh, a very difficult low point in my life. And uh -huh. I did move her to a nursing home where she lived for the next seven years. I'm imagining that... That conversation with your mother was very tough. She she didn't exactly jump on that and said, yeah, put me in a home. Yeah, no, she didn't. But my mother had been an RN when she was, you know, younger and able to work, you know. So she, she knew to some level, but she was, you know, becoming a little confused and stuff like that. She couldn't walk anymore. She She was essentially crippled from her osteoarthritis and osteoporosis. So and so, so you, you're providing this care for your mother, and then it's my understanding then that you had a good friend who came down with, can was diagnosed with cancer. Yes, she was uh, my best friend at the time. She was a divorced working mom. She had two young teenage daughters, and she had a very... A high-level job at a big Fortune 500 company. And um, I remember one night she discovered a lump behind her ear, and I said, you know, it felt like a grape. And I said, you should go get it checked out. Well, she did, and it turned out to be a rare cancer of the parotid gland. Wow. And so the doctor said, you have to have surgery and radiation and da-da-da. So her, her friends knew about this first out with cancer and afterwards after she had the radiation and everything she went back to work and over the course of the next four years while I'm dealing with my mother at this very same time uh, my friend Susan's cancer comes back with a vengeance now it's become bone cancer and it comes back not once or twice it comes back three times 
and there's more surgery and more radiation, but she won't allow me to tell anybody, and she keeps it a secret, which is seems to be very common, you know, among people who are ill. They, they sort of keep it to themselves. Right. And I don't want to be defined by the disease, the person with cancer. Right. But, you know, she, she was... She, she reached a crisis herself, and most things change when there's a crisis. It was actually her therapist, Dr. Suki Miller, who strongly urged her to call her friends and come to a meeting at her office the very next night. So Susan finally broke down, called 15 people. Twelve of us showed up the next night on less than 24 hours' notice. I want to find out about that in just a minute, but for folks who've just joined us, I want to remind you, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And we're at the point in this incredible story with our guest, Sheila Warnock, who is uh, president and CEO of Share the Caregiving and uh, also has written a book called Share the Care, where her friend has cancer, has kept it a secret, and her therapist says, you need to tell people. And she calls a meeting of her friends, 12 show up. What happened? Well, it was it was uh, an amazing meeting. I was very relieved to see other people involved. So for me, it was like, thank goodness other people are here and they know, you know, they're going to know. And my late co-author, Cappy Capicella, also came and she was terrified. She had never taken care of anyone or anything in her life and she just wanted to go run and hide. Everybody had all different kinds of emotions happening that night, but we got uh, got going right away. Dr. Miller asked Susan to tell her friends what was really going on. So for the first time, everyone knew exactly what the situation was. There was not any rumor or hearsay or guessing. Everybody heard it from the horse's mouth. And, of course, Susan cried and we cried. <clears throat> and then And then we started talking and we figured out that night don't ask me how but we figured out that night that we should work in teams there were 12 of us so we decided we would work in teams of two and each week one team would go to susan find out what she needed we would call everybody else there was no internet or email or any of this back then we would call everyone, get the jobs filled, and bring her a schedule of who was coming when to do what for how long so she could relax. And the other important thing this did was Susan never had to ask for help. We went to her. That made a tremendous difference. And then the next week, we would rotate with another team. And we called this eventually, after we started doing it for some time, a rotating captain system. And this was a really good way of sharing responsibility because oftentimes people get together as a group, but it ends up, all the work ends up falling on the shoulders of one or two people and they're going to burn out. Our little group continued working. We did everything under the sun for Susan, including right before she passed away, nearly three and a half years later, organizing her youngest daughter's wedding. We took care wow. of her over those years. We were strangers when we started this group. We were known as Susan's funny family after three and a half years. <laughs> and bet. we were like sisters. Uh, well, was there, you know, in, in normal or traditional families, there's always the one that doesn't carry their share of the load. Did you find that there was somebody in the 12 that, you know, was a little less reliable or was pretty much, you know, everybody on even keel or got somebody to take their place if they couldn't do their piece? Well, first of all, her real family, she had a mother, her stepdad, her sister, they all lived in Florida. So they weren't there. So, no, actually... All of us, the thing, the beauty about how a share the care group works is people do the jobs they feel comfortable doing and give the amount of time that they can. And we work together, sometimes often taking two or three people to accomplish one job 
like, you know, getting Susan admitted to the hospital and all the walking around and different people you have to talk to, and she was in a wheelchair. So it took um, a few of us to make that happen. Now, we, the more we did together, the more we supported each other, the tighter we got. We were like a crack emergency team. And you came together as strangers, and you mentioned you end up as really good friends. I wanted to find out in just a minute of the kind of jobs that were parceled out and how that worked and how you came upon that. And and I missed a word. You said we were known as, how did you describe Susan's, yourself? Susan's Funny Family. Okay. The Funny Family. Susan's Funny yeah, Family. Funny cool. Family. Somebody called us that, and it kind of stuck. So... um no, we, we did, you know, our friend um, was having a little bit of mobility problems in the beginning, so we would wheel her around, we would take, to, take her to doctor's appointments. We would go with her and listen and bring a list of questions that we had discussed to ask the doctor, because Susan was so, you know, I'm sure it happens to all of us. We go to the doctor and he tells us, you have blah, 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 and it might be nothing, but you can't remember what he said because you're so terrified. Boy, you're so right. Now, stay with us. We'll come right back to you. We're talking with Sheila Warnock, and it's an incredible story of how it grew ultimately into her organization called Share the Caregiving. A group of 12 women come together and provide help for their friend who is diagnosed with a very severe form of of cancer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. the answer. We're following the story that uh, Sheila Warnock is telling us about women coming together to help a friend and how that develops into a plan to help folks understand that caregiving doesn't have to be a lonely and alone job. And you were telling us uh, just a moment ago, Sheila, and I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil, you were telling us uh, about all the 12 who came together and each uh, had strengths in certain areas. Uh, What were the kind of jobs that you parceled out in addition uh, to transportation? Oh, like I said, we we took her to doctor's appointments. Um, We even did very unusual things, like at one point she wanted to go for a cancer treatment in the Bahamas. So some people did research on the place she wanted to go to, and she decided she really wanted to go. So then we had to organize getting her there with several people. Um, They had to help her find an apartment, get a car, and go with her to the clinic. And we would take turns going um, to be with her for a week at a time. So uh, she had someone with her constantly. How how long Um, was she there? A a few months. Unfortunately, the, the treatment didn't work, but part of the treatment when she came back was making um injections these special shots that we had to put into little shot needles and stuff and freeze them because she was taking them throughout the course of the day um well and 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 i'm reminding people again at this time there's no internet there's no airbnb there's no you know links uh where you hook everybody up i mean this is old school help in a foreign country No books, no caregiver <laughs> magazines, no no shows like you guys are doing. Um, there was nothing. Um, so actually, and then of course, as I mentioned, we we organized her daughter's wedding when she was very when Susan was very very ill. Um, she saved up all her energy so she could you know go to the wedding and right. be there and sparkle for the day, but. Under her direction, it wasn't like a group doesn't come in and take over your life. A group comes in to do what you want them to do in terms of helping you and your family. And also, groups help keep, um, you know, different kinds of creative projects going. The, the idea about a share the care group is it takes care of the whole family. So in this case, we were helping the young daughter get her wedding organized. In fact, she got married the day after she graduated from college. 
so we organized the loca- the place where it was held, the flowers, the band, the music, the food, da da da, all based on what Susan wanted. Well, and that was so a it, lovely way to kind of vicariously be able to plan your daughter's wedding when you physically can't do it. Well, you know, she just told us what she wanted, and we showed her, you know, all kinds of samples, and is this okay? So she was involved. She was the captain of making it happen, you know what I mean? But we did all the footwork. So you were caregivers. Uh, wedding planners. This is a movie. Caterers. I, this is, it like is a three movie. different yeah. movies all combined into one. And, and did the uh, wedding go well? The wedding was spectacular. It was a gorgeous day. Everything was perfect. Everybody had a great time. And I remember the bride thanking her parents because her her stepdad came in from California to, you know, go down the aisle with both Susan and and her her father. And... um, she said, you know, I just want to thank my parents for this beautiful wedding. It was at Tavern on the Green. Uh, and then she said, I also want to thank all my other moms for making it happen. Aww. And that's in Central. <laughs> Tavern on the Green is Central, Central Park, Park, correct? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's beautiful. It's, it's was. Not, not there anymore. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was a yeah. great place. Yeah. So yeah. that's. That what that's not unusual for share the care groups that happen. You know, they become families. They 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 mobilize more than once to help other people. They do all kinds of things. It's so so let's fast forward. You you've talked about share the care groups. So you come up with an idea that helps a friend, but that develops into a model that you actually teach to other organizations like MD Anderson in Houston, Sloan Kettering. So talk a little bit about how other people can um, develop and experience this type of care. Well, after our friend Susan died, we were contacted by a woman that she had met at Cancer Care at a support group. And this woman said, you don't know me, but Susan used to talk about you guys all the time. And she said, I'm like Susan. I have an elderly mother, a young daughter. I have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm about to have a bone marrow transplant. They can't, can't take care of me, but I have 20 friends that want to help. Do you think I can have a funny family? So, you know, after... Cappy and I looked at one another. We said, okay, and we called up everybody. We planned for this meeting. We got all of our group together with these 20 people. We had our forms. By then, we had developed a bunch of forms. We had principles. We had all of this stuff to impart to them and talk about what we did and how we did it. But most importantly, we told them what we got personally out of helping Susan. And... I remember that night vividly because we watched these people come in, much like our group had come in, frightened, nervous, skeptical, whatever. And when they heard us talk and, and talk about how, how wonderful it was to be able to do this for our friend, we saw them physically transform into, oh, we can do this. This isn't hard because it isn't hard. It's just organized. And... They were so excited to get going on their own that they could hardly wait to, to plan their own meeting. And the amount of love in the room for Francine, who was there, this woman that called us, was extraordinary. I remember I called up my friend Cappy, and I said, Cappy, we've got to put this down on paper so other people don't have to reinvent the wheel and share the care the book was published in 1995, and uh, it started spreading, you know, grassroots style. We'd hear from people all over who were starting groups just by picking up the book because that's the purpose of it. You can pick it up and do this. Well, I'm In lo- 2002, Cappy needed a group. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Wow. In fact, her father was also at the same time diagnosed with the glioblastoma. Mm. That's so what uh, Senator needed... McCain died of. Yes. Just yes. the other day. Yes. Yes, it's a terrible disease. But 
so 33 of us got together because Cappy opted for brain surgery, which left her helpless. And she died 10 months later. And it was then, after my third primary caregiving experience and writing the book and all of this, that I made the decision to leave my career and start a nonprofit organization to get this model out to the world because of the caregiving crisis that is upon us. Well, there are not going to be enough health professionals to take care of everybody, and this is a beautiful way for us to start helping each other now. Now, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're listening to an incredible story. Sheila Warnock, who not only reached out to help her mother, then reached out to help a friend, uh, and has put together a, a way in which others can connect to help someone who is in need. Uh, and, and as you get responses uh, to this program, what are folks saying to you? And uh, for people listening who may be in the similar uh, position, how do they go about beginning to put that group together? Okay. Well, first of all, it can be used for any illness, any disability, any circumstance, a full life cycle. It could be for a difficult pregnancy where a woman maybe has to stay in bed and rest and she has little children and she needs the support of a group to get her through her pregnancy safely and healthy. All the way through the life cycle to end of life, like it was for Susan and Cappy. Um, anything in between. People have accidents. They have surgery. They have a stroke. They have a heart attack. They have, it could be anything. So the way it starts, and this is how the book is written, it's not for the caregiver to have to organize this. It is for two friends or neighbors or relatives, two people who really want to help. The beginning chapters two through nine in Share the Care are written to these two people on how to work with a family to figure out who to invite to a meeting and what kind of help will be needed before the meeting happens. Then there's a whole bunch of forms they print out. The meeting is scripted. They don't have to make up anything. They are led step by step by step on how to organize that first very important meeting which is the heart of Share the Care, because it's very rare these days, you know, especially with everyone in their iPhones, you know, and their cell phones uh, constantly in front of them, to get a group of people together for the purpose of making a difference in someone's life. At the meeting, they will hear what's going on, meet everyone else, find out what other people do for a living as a way of understanding what kind of experiences and skills are already within that group, because there are many, like some people have been a caregiver, others are first-time caregiver. They will find out how Share the Care works, because the two people will lead them through everything. They can actually get started right away, because... They will be leaving with a sense of purpose. Let, let me ask in you. Organized way. Let me ask you before we run out of time to tell us a little about uh, Cappy Capicella. D- did you know her before you got involved in this group? Yes, in fact, I knew Cappy years before uh, Susan's group started. We were we were friends. We met when I uh, was very young in a class, and uh, we were friends. But our friendship deepened. Uh, greatly when we started working together to help Susan. And then I also started doing some freelance artwork uh, with Cappy, and we became a creative team. So we were not only longtime friends and having lived through the first experience, writing the book together, but we also had worked in advertising as a creative team coming up with concepts and, you know, producing commercials and print ads and stuff like that. Well, that's, it's, that, it's just really, a, it is a fabulous story. And Ron and I have been doing this show for a number of years. 
Uh, and I have to admit, you know, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, I don't even know 12 people that if something happened, they would ever show up. But, I, you know, I think that's probably not true that that those of us who are fortunate to be able to work or have church groups or you know other kids have other parents i think that it you know it you've broken it down just talking about it you've broken it down into these bite-sized pieces where i could see you really could put together a group of people who would do a variety of helpful things i'm sorry we are flat out of time but let me ask you very quickly uh, sheila your your website sharethecare.org has a lot of links for this kind of information and ways in which uh, folks can buy your book. Yes, it has everything. It has all the forms in the book. You can download them. It has links to purchase the book. Cool. It has stories, everything. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. And as Carol said, in all the years we've been doing this show, this is a first for us, and it's a a really cool idea. Well, it's really a great one, but... I, I think caregivers need to remember that they need to take care of themselves, and the best way to do that is to let other people help them. Thank you, Sheila. We appreciate you coming on. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of every program, we jump to a segment we call Take 10. It features Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert in addictions and caregiving. Our co-host Carol Zerniel is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you have a topic that when you first threw it out off air to Jamie, it sounds more like combat post-military, PTSD. Well, you know, I recently ran into a family that did have someone in the military that deployed uh and but it was for a short period of time when they came back they did have ptsd which made me think about the impact of trauma and you know uh, you know we've talked to caregivers who've been caregivers for years or family members that have been battling diseases for years um, you can have a single event so I'm just wondering about the nature of um, like PTSD people that suffer after effects from really bad things that happen or things that happen I don't know maybe it's not really bad can you talk a little bit about PTSD and what it is and and you know do we is everything PTSD that I've just been describing this is a great topic, Carol. I'm glad you, you actually got this one because, interesting enough, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, it's, it's, it's pretty pandemic, if you will, throughout our population, not simply just caregivers, because trauma, which is any sort of episodic event that either occurs to you or you can witness, if you will, like a life-threatening event, um, really happens from childhood on and is often untreated and is often repressed, and people develop symptoms from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and they may not even know it's that, because it, it all depends upon the intensity of the trauma and how close you are to the trauma, um, and the, the fact is how you were before the trauma. If you had two feet on the ground taking care of yourself, good self-esteem, usually you'll come out of the traumatic period in that fashion. But if you weren't taking care of yourself, Trauma can debilitate and can um, paralyze. So let me see if I can find an example from childhood. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use my own family. My, you know, my mother was sick off and on when I was a kid. 
And so we, my sister and I would go for fairly long periods where she wasn't really engaged with us. You know, we were safe. We had food. We had, you know, the things we needed. But she wasn't really emotionally engaged with us because she wasn't well. You know, is that something that, you know, may have left a little stamp on us, whether we knew it or not? Because my sister and I can tell you, don't think we have a little mark. Well, it also depends upon the age. What was it? What, how old were you? What was very young. Very, we're talking very young, like so under five. Young. Okay, it could be a trauma. Again, this is things that the wonder of therapy can help, like peel the onion to find out if it's trauma, because there is definite interventions for trauma. But also, some of the things that you described could also kind of weigh into our personalities and not be trauma. Um, and later on, you know, that feeling of being, let's say, detached or, you know, I hate to use it, but the word abandoned sometimes from a significant other can create personality traits later on. And that's what therapy is all about because it's also treatable and it's, it's something that, that we can actually go within and come out on the bright side. Well, I'm going to go with personality because my husband's noticed I can go all the way from Texas to Wisconsin and not say a word. <laughs> That I'm perfectly content to just sit. I'm someone I can sit for very long periods of time doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) You know, that's interesting because, you know, as a psychologist, um, I can actually treat trauma. There's several ways of doing it. But I did also experience, uh, I'm sure, traumatic events as a child. And so I actually am just like that, too. I kind of repress and I try to manage things around me. And uh, my therapist says, you know, I'm not open with the with the events that happened in childhood like you just were well so if you're if you're a caregiver or you're a you know mm-hmm. a family member of someone who seems to have PTSD and you're thinking why do they have PTSD you know they they weren't gone that long or it didn't seem that traumatic to me i mean that doesn't matter does it it's really about the person mm-hmm. It does not matter and i think we should also delineate something which is important because caregivers also suffer from another traumatic experience, which is called compassion fatigue. And the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder, where it's an external trauma, either we're involved with or life-threatening event or we're actually we're observing, compassion fatigue is from within. It's kind of trauma that would never resolve in ourselves. So when a caregiver becomes very burnt out, they can also exhibit symptoms of PTSD, but instead of being an external trauma, it's actually coming from within as an internal trauma. That's the difference between compassion fatigue and post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. Carol Zorniel, our co-host, is here as well. And I'm wondering, for a child, can PTSD be triggered by one event? I'm one of those kids who grew up in the Norman Rockwell world of Everything was great. The cereal was always crisp. The milk was fresh. The the table was set. The strawberries were cut perfectly. I hope you had ruffled curtains. Otherwise, I'm going to be we sorely disappointed. We, we and I thought we I thought we were brothers from another mother, but that uh, was exactly the opposite. Oh no! Everything was just perfect, except that one night when the phone rang in the middle of the night in a house where there was one phone. Because why would you need more? Yeah. And if the phone rang in the middle of the night, it was never good. And my dad's drugstore was burning down. I remember it like it's happening right now. And that is indelible. And that is untreated. Or should I say, maybe you have not gotten in touch with some of the interventions that can deal with trauma. That is exactly a trauma. That is dead on. In fact, we don't even remember, Ron and Carol, you know, much memories before what, three years old, four years old, yet trauma can be occurring at childbirth to four years old, and we don't even know, but it gets repressed. And also, by the way, just so you know, uh, theories and data have backed up the fact that trauma, if left untreated, can become intergenerational, which means you kind of hand the symptoms down. For instance, my father is a Holocaust survivor. And he never sought out therapy. And what he did was basically pass a lot of the traumatic symptoms and events down to my sister and myself. So what does that look like when you say passed it down? What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a, it's, it's dysfunction. It really is. It's, it's about codependency where, okay. let's say, our behavior evolves and revolves around either a person who's ill or a person who has trauma. 
um, and it's not quite authentic. And what we develop is behaviors to be able to manage that person. And then we develop roles in codependency, like the hero, the scapegoat, the mascot. But we're not acting in an authentic way. We're instead kind of responding to untreated trauma in our father or our mother, or like Ron says, even in something that he may have witnessed and, and, and was a part of, but can't explain today. Right. So what would you say to the people who say, oh, that's hocus pocus, that's, you know, childhood drama, flee, flee, flee? What would you say to those I people? T- I'm a huge believer that almost every behavioral health challenge, from addictions to psychiatric issues of depression and bipolar, um, has some undercurrent, underpinning of trauma. I just can't imagine a lifetime at all without some episodic two-by-four hitting us at a time when we least suspect it and us not necessarily getting help for it. So I think that trauma is huge, and our society is looking for ways to obviously treat it. My nephew came back also from Iraq, just like your family member, uh, uh, Carol, and he was there for a short period of time, and he still suffers from PTSD. But it doesn't have to be wartime. It truly doesn't. We see it happening in our lifetimes, just the way Ron described it. So what I'm hearing you say, the bottom line of all this PTSD discussion is, you know, really to kind of get in touch with, if you see someone that seems to have PTSD or if you have this, you know, anxiety and dysfunction in your life, that, you know, working on it really might help. Absolutely, because what happens is you're going to start drinking, you're going to start medicating it, you're going to look to harm yourself sometimes or others. These are all symptoms of, of trauma, untreated. Uh, you'll pull away from people. you become isolated. I mean, this all seems to mirror what we discuss sometimes with caregiver burnout that then progresses to compassion fatigue. Those symptoms are so similar. But we as therapists really have ways to deal with the trauma. So hope springs eternal. If you do feel you have any of these symptoms, please, please call a trauma-trained therapist. I like that. I'll get a phone number for my wife. <laughs> there you go. For caregiving. That is a trauma. Caregiving counseling. Being married to you. Yeah. She said the other day she's discovered she has no compassion. <laughs> no big deal. Hey, thanks for joining oh, us on this. Dr. Jamie, this was great. Why don't we do it again next week? Love to. Love to. Take 10 right here on Caregiver SOS on Air with Carol Zernil and Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you soon. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.